Hello and welcome to the University of California Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking with John Goodman about his new book, Mingus Speaks. John Goodman is a writer, former music critic, professor, and media consultant based in Oaxaca, Mexico. John Goodman, thanks for being on the UC Press Podcast today. Thank you, Chris. Now, we just heard a cut of a piece called Peggy's Blue Skyline that you shared with the UC Press. What do you remember about recording that session? This was 1972, and uh, I was with Mingus. We had talked in the afternoon, and in the evening, the band was playing at a funky little place in the basement of a church in Philadelphia. It was called Gino's Foxhole. They played a number of things. Uh, I recorded some of it, and one of the tunes uh, on which I thought Charles McPherson played very nice alto was Peggy's Blue Skylight. The title um, comes really from his attachment to a woman named Peggy Hitchcock in the 50s. And uh, she was one of the Mellon family, lots of money. And Mingus was was very much attracted to her. And he was attracted to a lot of uh, pretty and young waspy ladies and rich ones too, as a matter of fact. But the tune... uh, has, has been played many times. It's, it's a kind of variation on an earlier tune called Reincarnation of a Lovebird. And, um, and I think it's pretty. It's a beautiful tune. Well, it's also mentioned that those women were also attracted to Charles Mingus. He had a reputation as a lady killer. Oh, yes, he did indeed. And he tells stories in my book about uh, the, the limousines uh, parked outside the Half Note in New York when the band was playing there in the 50s, and all the, the young Vassar ladies would come and see him, and the Ivy League women who, uh, who were attracted to him. Yes, that's very true. Let's give a listen to another recording, one of you speaking with Charles Mangus. So uh, a few years passed by, and uh, a couple of years, and I get this letter from a guy in in Canada, Toronto. They asked me if I get Bud Powell, Dizzy Leslie, Max Roach, Charlie Parker, together. I don't know why he asked me. Yeah. So Senior did it. Senior did all the groundwork. Yeah. The hardest one to get was Bud Powell, because he's in the hospital. And Oscar said he'd be out around that time. Oscar, Oscar Goodstein was Bud Powell's manager. He was one of the owners of Birdland. Yeah. He told me that Bud would be out of time. He'd be glad to do it. So in that cut, the band he was talking about with Max Roach, Bud Powell, Dizzy Gillespie, what was the significance of it? Apparently, somebody from Toronto, some some promoter, called him up in, uh, in or around 52, 53, and asked him to put a concert together at Massey Hall in Toronto, and he wanted, the promoter wanted to get Charlie Parker, but Paul Dizzy, and uh, Mingus and Roach to play. And Mingus and his then wife Celia actually put the thing together. And they all got up there and they all played, and it was uh, one of the great concerts, one of the great jazz concerts of all time. Mingus recorded it on his debut label. Uh, as I say, 1953, and it was probably the biggest seller of any record that he had. 
You know, in this book, Charles Mingus has a lot to say about the business of being a jazz musician. Was he unusual in that he seemed to be involved in a lot of the business end of jazz, or would his experience have been normal for a jazz figure of his stature? Well, Mingus, Mingus started debut records because, uh, according to Max Roach, they couldn't get <laughs> they couldn't get bookings, and uh, I don't know how true that is, but. There's always been the, the urge on the part of, of a lot of jazz musicians to control their own output. So they have constant fights with record companies and promoters, and it, it, it's just a constant tension there. Um, so, so that's a little of the background, but Mingus was very open about the fact that he was not good at business, and he always had to have help from usually one of his wives to take care of that kind of thing. Um, and Celia pretty much, as far as I have heard from, from Charles and read about it, she pretty much ran the debut thing. He did the packing of the records and things like that, but she kind of ran the show and got the got the musicians, booked the studios, and so forth. Talking about jobs, early on in the book, we learned that he spent some time working in the post office during the prime of his music career. Why did he do this? Because he was broke. <laughs> he tells a story in my book about, uh, the, he, again, he was with Celia at that time. They had first come to New York. This is like 51, maybe. And uh, he had a couple of students, people that he had uh, was teaching bass to, but uh, they weren't making it. And Celia told him uh, that she had had an experience with her former husband, and she told him that, boy, the stairs were getting harder and harder to climb to their apartment. And uh, when Mingus heard that, he knew that was the, the cue for him to go out and start looking for work. So, yeah, he was very proud of the fact that he... He took up the challenge of the post office. He did all the heavy work. He describes it in the book, throwing the mailbags, making sure the chutes don't clog up. And uh, he said a couple of times he wished he'd been back there instead of playing music. I don't know if that's exactly accurate or not. But finally, Charlie Parker offered him a job on the road, and uh, he took it and got out of the post office work. Do you remember the first time you saw Charles Mingus perform? The first concert was the so-called comeback concert, and that's when I met him. Uh, that was at Philharmonic Hall in uh, February of 72. And I went backstage after the concert. I was, I was writing for Playboy then. And I thought he would put me off, but he didn't. He was warm. He was a very welcoming guy. He was also very big, and he talked extremely fast. His speeches was forever slurred and kind of machine gun style, and really hard to understand. But after a time, you get you got I got close enough to him and heard it enough so that I, I began to pick it up. But uh, that was a, an enormous success for Megas. He he just about filled the hall. And he'd been out of circulation for some six years with uh, just depression and, and on medication, gave up music, pretty much just retired to his den. And uh, 
Finally, he was convinced to come back and start playing again. And he, uh, some, some folks put this concert together, and it was quite good. One of the things I got a kick out of in this book was learning that he didn't have a lot of time for avant-garde jazz musicians, particularly those who didn't approach jazz with the same discipline or musical training that he had. Is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say. Uh, Mingus was, was extremely critical of people who didn't study who didn't take the time and effort to, to understand the traditions of the music that they were playing. Uh, he compared it often to, to concert music, uh, symphony music, and he said, you know, nobody can get by <laughs> in that area unless they really work hard. And I think uh, he, was, he was highly critical, particularly of a lot of the free jazz players. He thought they were phonies. He thought they were... Uh, just making noise because they simply did not they did not take the trouble to 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 understand where the music came from and what could be formally allowed in the confines of the music to play. So they just played anything. A motif that shows up in this book is Mingus's views on race and music, and I'm going to paraphrase him here. The Greeks had their music, the Jews had their music, but he wasn't sure if African Americans had their own kind of music, and if they did, whether it was blues or whether it was jazz. Could you unpack that for us? What was he trying to say, and have I presented his views accurately? I think you've got it pretty pretty well right. Um, he wanted an ethnic music for black people to bring them back to life. The 70s was a time when, when blacks were, were at sea. They, they, they were simply looking for all kinds of answers. The Muslim, the black Muslim movement got started. Uh, there were all kinds of protest movements going. And Mingus thought that some kind of an ethnic music based on the blues might bring people, bring uh, his people together. Um, he was he was very upfront about that and very forceful about it. He felt that there was a lot of uh, segregation still going on in music, and uh, that it was simply a way to replace some of the emphasis on rhythm and blues and rock and roll, which was which was beginning to really take over the music scene in the '70s, as you know. Did you ever challenge him on that? Did he just not see all of the other contributions African-Americans made to music, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, and funk? Were they not as legitimate as the blues? That's it. They weren't as legitimate. He thought they were mostly foisted on the black community by commercial interests. Uh, he kept talking about Madison Avenue as one of his phrases. And I think Mingus felt that uh, particularly the, the forces behind uh, radio they would they would force the the kind of music on people that that would sell frankly so it was a matter of the commercial interests versus the artistic artistic interests and that conflict played out in mingus in many many areas you were the jazz critic for playboy for many years and obviously met and interviewed quite a few jazz musicians was charles mingus an exceptional talker in the world of jazz oh man charles mingus was absolutely unique in that regard he was the, he was the most exceptional kind of talker i I've, I've never heard anything like it and i've been around a lot of jazz people um not everything he said was accurate but but he he had an incredible knowledge of jazz and jazz musicians more than anybody I'd ever met. 
Let me read you, if I can, Chris, a short quote from the uh, introduction about this. Moody, he could clam up and offer the most laconic answers, or he could spout like a geyser, and you soaked it up and followed his rush of words to the end, or the next jump in subject. Yes, it was like his bass solos. And if you were lucky, you could say something that advanced the conversation. And it was a matter of getting him comfortable enough so that he would feel at ease and just spout. And, and he didn't do it all the time, as you know from the book. But when he did, it was quite extraordinary. Now, this book is primarily, although not exclusively, transcripts of your talk to Charles Mingus, and then with some interviews of other people he mentioned or with people who clarify some of the things he was talking about. Right after Charles Mingus, the person who is, in my mind anyway, the most important of the book is his last wife, Sue. She comes across as a pretty amazing woman. Could you talk a little bit about Sue Mingus and what she's doing to keep Charles's music alive for a new generation? Well, Sue is amazing. She, uh, she She's getting on in years now, of course, but she has... She's still active. She's at the Jazz Standard every Monday night with the Mingus Big Band. There are actually three tribute bands that play Mingus music that she more or less uh, handles or arranges dates for and and so forth. And they've won lots of awards. Uh, She's basically won recognition for Mingus as a great jazz composer. I think before he died, and certainly the few years after, he was very well known as a great bass player and as a band leader even. But uh, the fact that he is so well known now and accepted as as one of the few great jazz composers along with Ellington is pretty much owing to Sue. And uh, she's kept the, the flame alive. So are there any particular pieces of his work that you would recommend to someone who wants an introduction to the music of Charles Mingus? Well, I think there are maybe two that, uh, that people cite mostly, and, and certainly the one is Mingus A-Um, which is from the 50s, and uh, that, that's probably the best seller that he ever had. Um, and it's, it's absolutely marvelous, marvelous. It's on CD, and, and it's easy to find. The other one, which, which runs through my book like a kind of undercurrent or a theme, is Let My Children Hear Music. And that is a much more ambitious and it's a uh, piece, it's a big band, uh, lots of different personnels and personnel changes, very complex music for the most part. And Mingus thought and said on several occasions he thought it was the best album he had ever done. Um, it's it's got a richness to it that uh, is extraordinary in jazz. John Goodman, the author of Mingus Speaks. Thanks for being on the University of California Press podcast today. You're very welcome, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at www.ucpress.edu. Don't forget, the University of California Press is on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash ucpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at UC Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the University of California Press podcast. Copyright 2013, the University of California Press. All rights reserved.